Hello, you're listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. We are a general interest independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. This year, because of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had to close our store and cancel in-person events. But Skylight is your neighborhood bookstore, and we are finding ways to create community even while we're far apart. In the coming weeks, we'll be putting out lots of new audio content to help you discover new books, connect with authors, and check in with your favorite booksellers. To learn more about how you can help keep Skylight alive, please visit our website at skylightbooks.com or check out our social media accounts on Twitter and Instagram. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Hello, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Skylit. This is the Skylight Books podcast series where we bring you conversations with authors near and far. My name is Maddie Gobo. I'm the events manager here at Skylight Books. I'm your host today. Um, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. It's not often we get to hear from both an author and the person who edited their book. Um, and today's author is someone I'm, I'm a big fan of, uh, Mauro Javier Cardenas. And he's going to be in conversation with his editor, Jeremy M. Davies. I'm going to read a little bit more about them so you get to know them. Um, but first, I want to say a few words about Skylight. So right now, we are open every day from 11 a.m. to 7 p.m. weekdays and 10 a.m. to 8 p.m. weekends. Um, you're welcome to come in and browse if you wear a mask and sanitize your hands and all that good stuff. We also offer curbside pickup those same hours and online orders and uh, countrywide shipping on our website, skylightbooks.com. And we wanna encourage you to get your holiday shopping done as early as possible this year. I know you're probably hearing this from all angles, but um, you may have noticed that everything's a little bit haywire lately and uh, we can't always rely on the, the answers and the products we want arriving in time. <laughs> so yeah, just your friendly reminder to um, order those books for your loved ones as soon as you can. All right, so let's jump in. Um, today, the book we're going to be discussing is called Aphasia. It's Mauro Javier Cardenas's second novel. Mauro Javier Cardenas is the author of The Revolutionaries Try Again, which the New York Times called an original insubordinate novel. I love an insubordinate novel. In 2017, the Hay Festival included him in Bogota 39, a selection of the best young Latin American novelists working today. Jeremy M. Davies is the author of the novels Rose Alley and Fancy and the story collection The Knack of Doing. He is senior editor at And Other Stories and was previously an editor for both Dalkey Archive Press and Farrar Strauss and Giro. Mauro and Jeremy, welcome to the podcast. I'm so happy to have you. Hi. Thank you for having us. Yeah, wonderful to be here. All right. So, so, so you guys just want to kind of jump in and start talking, right? Is that right? Uh, yeah, I think that's the plan. All right, I'm I'm here to listen. <laughs> Take it away. <laughs> yeah, don't pay too too close an attention to what we say. We we probably don't mean any of it. Um, all right, Mauro, do you you wanna you wanna lead off? This is your party. Uh, yeah. Tell me what what questions do you have for me, Jeremy? After all <laughs> these years. <laughs> after all these years. So many questions. Well, as as I mentioned to you, and I don't know if you thought I was joking, but you know, I I, I was deadly serious. Um, as you know, uh, I was supposed to do an event, an online event, with uh, the great Australian novelist, fiction writer. Um, I guess you probably would object to the term novelist, uh, Gerald Murnane, a few weeks ago, and I was terrified of doing it. Uh, and I usually don't prepare for events whatsoever because uh, I'm less anxious if I just go in and wing it. But with Mernay and I just felt like I had to have something in store because, you know, he could object to the wrong kind of question. God forbid it be too academic or too theoretical. Um, so I started taking notes. And uh, as I threatened, uh, since that event was unfortunately canceled, I'm just going to use those questions on you right now uh, since I've got them right here uh, on my lovely desktop. So... Uh, Let's start with some general stuff about your uh, your writing past. So I'm curious, uh, and I think this applies just as well to you as to most writers that I love. Um, I'm curious what 
what fictions about fiction did you believe in as a child and had to get past, you know, in order to actually produce fiction in order to write it? Uh, so just an example, um, when I was a kid, uh, and I read a lot, and as I, as I assume you you must have done at some point in your childhood, um, I was sort of obsessed with it. But I had this idea in my head that unless I could actually imagine every character and every action and every room and every piece of furniture, I was somehow doing it wrong. Um, and I used to get extremely frustrated, um, you know, because especially I was when I was young, I read a lot of genre fiction, a lot of sci-fi. Uh, which sort that's the sort of book that's just obsessed with telling you, you know, what the alien looks like or what this piece of technology looks like. And I could never quite do it. I couldn't imagine those things. I'm just terrible at that. Um, it took me a long time to finally realize that actually that wasn't the point, that it's not a screenplay that I'm supposed to enact in my head. So I'm just curious what, what sorts of thing like that you had to get around or if you had that same problem even at some point or because I know you agree with me that uh, overly descriptive scenes in fiction is is not a great not a great mode yeah you know, a, a few a few things uh, come to mind uh, jeremy uh, you know when i was uh, when i was uh, after i graduated from college and i started reading a lot of fiction i remember calling my mother and letter and telling her like hey you know i've i've changed i'm no longer want to be an economist and do public policy uh, I was very good at math as well. So like my sort of identity was really tied to econometrics and mathematical uh, equations and so on. And my mother reminded me of something I had completely forgotten that when I was a kid, uh, you know, I remember myself as not reading uh, too much. You know, I was mostly studying math and playing soccer and, and so on. And she reminded me that I was when I was a kid, um, you know, there weren't a lot of fiction uh, in the house. There weren't a lot of sort of novels, but actually there were no novels at all. My parents weren't uh, big readers, but uh, she had purchased from an ambulatory salesman a collection of encyclopedias. Uh, and one of them were about, one of them was about the wonders of the world. Another one was just like, you know, a general encyclopedia. There was an encyclopedia about music. Um, and she reminded me that I used to read all those encyclopedias when I was uh, a kid, and that I used to actually quiz her uh, about, uh, you know, yeah, we invent the name of a country and then ask her like, do you know this country? And she'd be like, oh yeah, like, wrong, it's made up, you know, which immediately comes to mind, you know, like, and, and of course I did not realize it at the time, but when I first read the Borges story, right, Tlion yeah. Ukbar, <laughs> right about the invented country i was i didn't now that i'm talking i was like oh <laughs> that's probably why i love that story so much you know that sort of notion of inventing countries encyclopedia so this is like a long window sort of way of giving you a context that uh when it came to fiction uh when i started thinking about writing fiction i had no idea what i wanted to do i had no clue i had, my identity was in no way tied with literature uh and so to me when I first started wanting to write, it was more about like, okay, so I'm not gonna be an economist. I'm not gonna go back to Ecuador to run for office. <laughs> so what do, what do I do with my life, right? And so I first started taking courses at the uh, Berkeley Extension. Right? So I took a course in psychology. I was like, maybe I'll be a therapist like my mother. You know, I took a, a class on uh, uh, Ulysses by James Joyce, mm -hmm. uh, which, to serve as a reminder to the critic who said that I only read the first three chapters of Ulysses, <laughs> uh, but I did take the whole class. Uh, and, and then I took a class on, on fiction writing uh, and, and it seemed to me uh, that fiction writing was could potentially be something that could uh, be of interest because in my mind at the time, and it's kind of illogical, right? Because I hadn't read that much fiction. I was like, well, fiction could be this way of kind of aggregating everything I know about the world put it into 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 words right uh and i didn't really don't know that much so it wasn't really that much to aggregate right so it's also a really great uh, professional decision for your future yeah. and for your stability yeah. <laughs> exactly so i i think that i was i was fairly clueless about kind of what fiction meant what was supposed to mean to me um i the only things i knew at the beginning were that i like borges and that i like hopscotch by cortazar I think what that meant to me in my mind was that on the Borges side, like the conceptual fake essays, 
you know, especially Pierre Menard, right? That's one of my, my favorite ones. That, uh, that was one of the things that caught my attention. Uh, and then the other one in, in, in Hopscotch, you know, uh, the kind of ludic aspect of now the sort of uh, playfulness of that book, starting with like the epigraph, right? Which is from a made up epigraph from Cesar Bruto, which is supposed to be like the dumb character who like talks about, you know, being a bird and you know, it gives you a, it's like this epigraph has this combination of like mockery and like metamorphosis and like moral instruction. It's hilarious. Anyway, so those were kind of the starting, the starting sort of, uh, you know, uh, books that, that made me want to sort of figure out whether I could be a writer. And then years and years and years went by when I had no clue what I was doing whatsoever. I was taking, you know, a few courses here and there, like during the summer, uh, the Berkeley extension. And of course, as you probably know, in the majority of these courses, they teach you from like the best American short stories, right? Which right. the majority of those stories are the antithesis of what I, you know, instinctively felt I did not want to do. And it was only like years later when I took a, a, a summer course uh, with some folks from Narrative Magazine, Tom Jenks and his wife, uh, uh, that that uh, he made he made us read the uh, Poetics of Aristotle. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and there's a chapter that lays out very clearly how conventional fiction works, right? The, the reversals and recognitions, the conflict action resolution, those kinds of things. And I was like, oh, okay. So this is why I don't know <laughs> about fiction. This is, this kind of formulaic thing is, is what I, I don't like about fiction. And so, so that made it easier for me to kind of know, okay, so if I'm not going to do that, what am I going to do? And then that took a bunch of, <laughs> an extra few years, right? To figure out, okay, what, what does that mean? And I think the, even in my first novel, I didn't quite know the answer. As you know from reading that book, there's all kinds of styles yeah. uh, that I that I deploy in that book. Yeah, yeah, it's much more, um, much and, more. And, uh, what's the word? Polyvocal than than aphasia is. Yeah, and, and I think that what what I realize, maybe of course in retrospect, right? Just to simplify, right. Um, that after I written the revolutionary stride again, when I was looking back at it and I felt like this urge to rewrite all of it using these kind of long sentences with voices, I did sort of, my favorite sentence in that book was the one about uh, one of the characters uh, not wanting to think about uh, the uh, apparition of the Virgin Mary uh, in the mountains, uh, which is a sentence that really focuses on that initial impulse, which is, you know, I don't care if people think it was mass delusion. I was there and I saw the sun move. Mm -hmm. That sort of sentence kind of does away with kind of scenes. It does away with traditional conflict. It does away with a lot of things. But what it does is it takes that impulse, right? Of, you know, not caring about people saying it was mass delusion that he was there and exploring it and, and exhausting that impulse and, and really kind of, circling it over and over again until you can no longer uh, say anything else. And so that kind of sentence felt to me, or it feels to me now, it still does, that was the kind of sentence that would take me to, that would not take me, that it would give me a place uh, in what I wanted to do, that, um, that this is what I wanted to do, that I wanted to take these impulses and really explore these impulses with everything that fiction allows you to do, right? Which is uh, explore memories, uh, create analysis, imaginary dialogue, imaginary scenarios, quotations that flow through the mind. All that felt that this kind of sentence was um, flexible enough to do, to be able to dramatize these kinds of emphasis through these memes. And I think aphasia gets closer and closer, I think, to that, um, to using only those kinds of sentences. As you know, the my third one, American Abductions, I think it gets much closer because I think sure. the majority the majority of the sentences follow that pattern. I think in aphasia, there's still a few that are, I would say more traditional long sentences, right? Where you, you're just kind of uh, moving moving the, the plot forward in a, in a way, right? Um, but, but there is quite a bit of these kinds of performance of an impulse sentence. 
maybe i mean since since uh i think now we've probably alienated uh you know all the listeners who aren't truly serious maybe you should talk a bit about uh maybe you should say just a couple of words this isn't one of my questions it just occurs to me that it might be a good idea for people who because since aphasia is only now coming out and obviously we're both very familiar with it but i wonder maybe you just want to say briefly you know what the revolutionaries try again is about you know if you you probably have practice now saying that in one or two sentences and then how how that changes it going into aphasia and how even if you, if you want to how that changes going into american abductions just to give like a real you know a framework for people to hang what we're saying on yeah sure um <clears throat> the revolutionaries uh, try again is a character called antonio who uh returns to ecuador to try to run for office but never really does that's it <laughs> and that's a good the you know the, the fun of the novel in many ways uh, is that the title gives away the plot, the revolution to try again. So I didn't feel the need to then try to dramatize what was very obvious, right? The sort of trajectory of somebody going back and trying to run for office. So um, that novel has, you know, a number of different styles uh, from some traditional styles to uh, sentences with formal constraints, uh, sentences that have only use M dashes, uh, and so on, and so, and there were there were many characters uh, in that novel, and it was in a way it was just trying to um, portray a certain time period in Ecuador, eighties and nineties, um, you know, and, and how uh, that sort of time period evolved. I think Aphasia is 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 very different um, than the Revolutionary Try Again in the sense of, you know, when I finished Revolutionary Try Again, I, I was asking myself. Uh, and yeah, I'm sure you do this all the time, right? It's just, what is it about fiction that I like? What is it about the no my favorite novels that I like? Yeah. And to me, although I love novels like 2666 by Rosa Bolaño, which are these huge novels, right? And, you know, the, uh, uh, and, and other novels are kind of large in scope, um, like even Life of Uses Manual by Perec, right? I, I, I did sort of, you know, as I grew older, maybe, maybe, I don't know if you have anything to do with age, but some of my fairy novels are still novels where it's just really one character. And it is about the consciousness of one character. So Austerlitz by W.G. Siebel, probably the first half of it is probably my, my favorite, you know, 100 pages in literature, right? Which is about Jack Austerlitz telling a, the narrator about architecture. And fortresses, right. yeah. and you and you having as a reader no idea why he's telling you this. You find out right in the middle of a novel what happened, but you know that he's kind of not have forgotten what happened to him as a child's traumatic experience, and how all the architecture conversations was really kind of some oblique way of getting close to the subject, sure. uh, which was of course uh, you know World War Two and uh, and the Holocaust, and. And so in aphasia, I really wanted to say, okay, you know, what happens if I do the same, if I just focus on one character, right? And, and just focus on all the impulses related to this one character and, and focus on, you know, this one time period or the time period in which Antonio now from Colombia, from Bogota has a family um, and, uh, his sister has lost her ability to distinguish between what's real and what's not real. And therefore she has uh, escaped uh, because she's in trial uh, for some things that she'd done. Uh, and this sort of very traumatic time period for Antonio that brings back all kinds of memories um, and sort of, uh, I wanted to dramatize that time period uh, and focus exclusively on, on his consciousness. Uh, although of course, there are a lot of different voices that come into it, right? And so there his consciousness yeah. gets extended by, you know, the recordings of his mother, recordings of his former wife, uh, you know. Uh, so I think there's 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 other voices, but they're all filtered through Antonio's consciousness. Yeah. I think I think on the third one, uh, it's the same Antonio and the same family, but Antonio has been deported, and so. The novel is more of a, I would call it a surrealist oral history where Antonio and his daughters, um, you know, have been interviewing Latin Americans that have been deported from the United States and it's mostly monologues, right? These, these sort of 
first person, third person Q and A monologues that also have all these voices in it. Uh, and then this the surreal aspect of it, right? Because there's this show, Doctor Sueño, uh, where you can call in and uh, he can interpret the dream for you. So, you know, in in a way, it's uh, I would say aphasia and American elections are are closer to one another, because like, it's where I already feel that I know exactly what I want to do with with the sentence and and how I want to approach it, and so the my preoccupations become more around the subject matter, right? Um, and, and how to approach uh, those impulses, how to find the impulses that I think are important for the character. Um, yeah, I think you should change Antonio's uh, country of origin with every book. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. And then I can say, well, yes, this is uh, one of those transnational. Exactly. Antonio, Antonio <laughs> gets reborn in a different country. I think there's a couple of books like that, right? I think I think it has a book like that, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. There are. No, I, I, I like that idea. It'll, it'll throw everyone off the scent even more. <laughs> <laughs> well, that that, that kind of leads me to my my next question, which um, is one I think that's it's I don't know it's you know you and I I guess you know we we're we're you know I, I would broadly describe us as weirdos who tend to be you know more interested again in the you know the Thomas Bernhardt that kind of you know high modernist or low modernist I don't know what Bernhardt would be uh, you know I hate the word experimental with the, you know applied to fiction but you know I suppose that is the easiest uh, way to make people understand the sorts of things that one is attracted to, not exclusively, but um, often uh, those books tended to be the more important ones for us. I, you know, I, I'm speaking for both of us, if that's all right. Uh, you, can, you can contradict me, but here's, here's my question. And, you know, I, I studied with William H. Gass and I really idolized him for many, many years. And this is always a, a sort of an issue with him. And with writers who who throw a lot of muscle, I guess, into their sentences, um, and you know, as Gas always put it, and this is sort of uh, I don't know semi-famous uh, way of talking about it is is that you know some writers want you to see through the window, and some writers want to you know make the window as beautiful as possible so that you even forget there may be something on the other side of it. Uh, I'm paraphrasing pretty wildly there. So my question is storytelling versus sentence making. I'm not saying that that's a binary and that they're mutually exclusive, but you know, when, when did one become the other for you? How did it become? I mean, are you, are you, you sound more invested in sentence making than in actually carrying a narrative through, although your books are very heavily narrative. So I guess is that a specific enough question? Can you talk about the, is there a division between the beautiful sentence making or the interesting sentence making or the, the consciousness carrying sentence making and the narrative momentum in your work? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I think we've, and, and by the way, for, for those that are listening, you know, Jeremy and I uh, actually met prior to you being my editor. Uh, we were introduced by a bookseller uh, Stephen Sparks, uh, who is the owner of Point Reyes Books, uh, prior to there being any relationship between sort of uh, editor and writer, uh, Stephen had just sort of said, hey, I think you two should meet. You, get, you like the, the same kind of books. And, and it turned out we did. And uh, we tend to have the same kind of absurdist, uh, you know, death-ridden uh, humor. Uh, and so, uh, so, so we, and then we text each other every now and then with mostly GIFs these days. And so, uh, you know, I think William Gas has, has come up uh, at some point or another. And the reason Gas comes up, you know, to me is that I think that when I started writing, you know, uh, way back, you know, when in my, my 20s, I was really definitely in the camp of, you know, Novel Cobb and, and Gas and like Gary Lutz and uh, and all that, right? The sentence is a lonely place, you know, and the sounds and all that. and and in some ways, I, I, I'm still there, right? I, I love those writers more than I love anybody that sort of uh, wants to tell me a story, right? Because every time somebody wants to tell me a story, I immediately, like, uh, I can tell already kind of where the story is going. I can tell already that they're trying to tell me a story. Yeah. I can tell already that, uh, so in a way, like storytelling as it's conventionally done, oftentimes feels to me like an obstacle to understanding the writer and what that writer thinks. You know, because I'm more interested in I'm more interested in sort of and sort of reading what the writer thinks, right? 
or the narrator that writer's creating, whatever, uh, that I am interested in kind of what's going to happen to the narrator or the characters, just because uh, those sort of structures of narrative just, just feel so, um, I don't know, just, just feel like artifacts, right? I mean, they're everywhere. Um, you know, you can't watch a TV show without it being exactly that, right? And or in advertising, uh, or or uh, even a, an ad on on Twitter. You know, it's all kind of. And so, I, I feel like it's it just an obstacle to communication in many ways to to use a kind of sort of storytelling. But the part where I maybe have changed over the years, um, and I'm I'm going to be echoing Bolaño here, is that it's it's not enough to just write a beautiful sounding sentence. In fact, it's fairly easy to do that. It's actually fairly easy to write, at least for me, a sentence that sounds really well. Sure. A sentence that like has these sort of sonic relationships. You know, in fact, you could probably write an algorithm that can write you those kinds of sentences, right? <laughs> because you, you, you can actually set up, okay, I want these kinds of sounds to match these kinds of sounds. And, you know, you can create sort of trees of sense between nouns and verbs, right? And so I do think that there has to be something else besides writing a sentence that sort of sounds well, yeah. right? And, and that to me is simply, you know, trying to deploy fiction to share things, and I think maybe this, you know, you might not agree with this, but th there is a certain desire for me to share things that in fiction, through these kinds of elaborate sentences that allow these kinds of thoughts and images to come in, to share things that, that you don't normally, you know, hear from others, that things that people don't tell you in polite conversation uh, or impolite conversation, things that are way below the surface right? And that um, you don't often fit in narratives, right? Because they just don't serve a purpose. And so I think, I think that's how my sort of view has evolved. And it doesn't mean that I've sort of shifted over from the storytelling camp to the, you know, uh, from, from the original camp of the gas uh, side, right? The novel club side of things. Uh, but, but I am sort of more aware of that now. It's like, you know, what exactly do I want this sentence to do? What is the impulse that is important to me that I want to explore uh, in these kinds of long sentences, right? Uh, and, and I think what, what I hope also is that these kinds of sentences, that the reason why they're exciting and, and that the reason why you don't need sort of a more structured narrative is that, that they feel exciting because you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know where your sentence is going. You don't know how the sentence is going to end. And when I'm writing them, I don't know how the sentence is going to end, right? That's what I actually like about writing is that I'm going to wake up in the morning and I don't know what's going to happen, uh, you know, towards the end of the sentence, you know, or in the middle of it, right? And mm -hmm. I think as we talked about at some point or another, it takes me around a week to write one sentence of around, you know, 1,500 words. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I've, I've, I don't, you know, that, I mean, we don't have time to discuss what fiction is for because I, I don't have a good answer for it either. But that's, you know, that is a, I think that's a valid way of describing it without veering into sort of Joan Didion-esque sentimentality about, you know, I don't know, stories being important or necessary to live or to, ah. to <laughs> forward certain, I don't know. I, I mean, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't be more, uh, I couldn't be more, you know, invested in social justice in, in life, but in fiction, I don't, you know, that doesn't apply at all. No, no, no morality, <laughs> no, <laughs> no rules, only, only, only the vileness that is, you know, <laughs> that is, but yeah. Well, I do, I do think that, you know, one way that I've come to sort of think about fiction in general, right, is that what, what is it for is to kind of be able to potentially live in somebody else's consciousness and that that consciousness is rich enough that you your imagination expands in some ways because you're suddenly are being forced to imagine things you hadn't imagined before right so when you read Pierre Menard for the first time chances are you hadn't thought about you know somebody kind of rewriting Don Quixote exactly word for word or chances are you hadn't imagined about Funes you know remembering every single little detail right and so you know, 
part of what it becomes very easy, like if we put aside, you know, the concept of sentence versus storytelling, any of those kinds of things, and you just say, you know, what is the kind of fiction you like? I would say it's a kind of fiction where, you know, you, you can immediately tell that this is not a good novel when you, when you can imagine everything ready-made. It's so easy to imagine everything that's being written because the kind of the concepts immediately fall into place and create its own kind of grammar, its own kind of sort of chatter. And it's all the same kind of chatter that you already know, right? Um, and so whether it is about, you know, writing about your sort of traumatic sort of experiences or writing about, you know, a guy who may or may not have like 15, 20 cats in his house uh, or- or <laughs> I don't know uh, what you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> Fancy by Jeremy Davis. Uh, or, you know, a fake essay, you know, is really around, uh, are you entering a world with images that you hadn't considered before and that are now part of your imagination? Yeah, or, or, or you know, uh, it expands your lexicon. I don't just mean, I don't mean that in a, you know, scholastic way of like just teaching you new words, but it teaches you you new new combinations. It teaches you, you know, it is it is literally consciousness expanding work in in the right hands. Although I have to say, I mean, not only do I think it's a completely false binary between ex so-called experimental fiction or, or traditional narrative fiction, or between between the the beautiful window and the beautiful scenery behind the window. I mean, I would argue there is no scenery behind the window. There's only the window anyway. There's nothing out there. Um, not only do I think that's you know nonsense, a kind of ridiculous battle to be fighting. Uh, I mean, I've, I've mellowed too. I mean, over the years, I think. I do enjoy traditional fiction now when it's done right. It is extraordinary, as you say, that you can pick up something in a totally, you know, I don't know, I, I don't think science fiction is inferior or that genre fiction is necessarily inferior to literary fiction. It's just that so many, I think it's actually harder to write a good piece of genre fiction than it is to write, you know, a good piece of literary fiction because I don't know how you find your way out of those cliches. Uh, I don't know how you bring those things back to life, but it can be done. And it's, you know, instantly, as you say, from the first sentence that you're in the hands of someone who's going to do something interesting, is going to bring a voice to it, is going to make those sentences mean something more than just, you know, rough draft for the film adaptation they hope will one day be made. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Yeah, I, I, I would agree with you that, you know, genre doesn't really, uh, it's not really important. Um, but but it does become very difficult, right? Uh, you know, I think I admire science fiction writers that 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 can create imagery that that feels like it's expanding your own imagination. It doesn't feel like oh, I already I already saw that in a movie or I already read that in a, uh, in another story, right? That they're creating concepts and scenarios that are very imaginative. And I, I wanted to mention the writer that you recommended to me, which I forgot his name. Um, the the one I think is called Dimensions. Is that the one that you recommended? Oh, was that is that Robert Sheckley? Yes, I mean that that's a clear example, right? Where his short stories are mostly conventional in structure, but the concepts of the stories um, are fairly unique and interesting and compelling. And some of the imagery you can see how some of the imagery in his stories has filtered into science fiction movies. Uh, oh, that came yeah. that came much later. Uh, like there's a story around like the wind in this planet uh, that I feel like is an ubiquitous image in, in science fiction movies. Obviously, he wrote that you know years and years before those movies were out there. Yeah, well, he's he and and Barry Malsberg and and people of that ilk are are really kind of special because they wrote. I mean, this, you know, here I am, you know, uh, middle-aged or rapidly approaching middle-aged. And instead of, you know, instead of talking everyone's ears off about how wonderful James Joyce is, and, and believe me, James Joyce is wonderful, but uh, now I'm just sort of absolutely fascinated that people like Sheckley or Malsberg or, I don't know, Joanna Russ or, or Samuel Delaney uh, on a good day, these people were writing like six books <laughs> a year or more. Uh, I mean, you know, Delaney has like... The, you know how novels often uh, at the very end, there's sort of that affectation to say, you know, 2002, 2007, whatever. The, these are the years that I wrote it. This is the city I wrote it in. And Delaney has like, you know, March to June, March to April <laughs> in a single year. 
for like a 300 page novel. Uh, and Malzberg's the same way. I mean, he was feeding his family doing this stuff and he just churned this, churned it out. And you know, there are better ones and worse ones, but he never lets up. You're always in the hands of a consciousness of a, of a sentence maker of very high quality who can poke fun at what he's doing and knows liter literature, but is doing this, you know, and it's extraordinary to me that you can pull that off. It really is like, you know, getting out of a straitjacket underwater, you know, whereas, you know, sitting down and writing, you know, as, as I tend to do, you know, these beautiful sentences <laughs> about, you know, uh, about lunatics uh, spinning out their own little world is, is considerably easier, actually. Well, it's another category that that I find, that, you know, very interesting and like very difficult is what we could call conceptual literature, right? Because conceptual literature is very similar in the sense that, you know, for it to be interesting, the concepts have to be interesting. Um, and so when you take away kind of psychology from, from the novel, right? And all you're doing is sort of looking at certain concepts and looking at connections between them. That's something like the Villa Matazas, right? Uh, or Borges, of course, um, you know, it becomes very apparent even quicker that the concepts are ready-made as well. And so, I, and I say this because I'm, the novel that I'm writing right now, I uh, put a rule, a very simple rule, whereas um, it's, it's Antonio and his family again, but um, he's not allowed to talk about uh, trauma or loss or any of those things. Like on the one hand, aphasia is all about kind of the impulses behind the negation of trauma, the negation of loss and so on. In this novel, Antonio says, I'm tired of writing and thinking about trauma and loss. So I'm going to write about things that do not contain any of that. And I will not allow any of that to come in. And so it becomes basically what I found the first hundred pages that I've written is that is conceptual, right? You're really just looking at concepts and exploring them. So it becomes more essayistic in a way. It makes it even more difficult to make it compelling, right? Because you're no longer, you can't use emotions as a, as a crutch, right? right. Um, are you still there, Mara? I'm here. Oh, you are, okay. <laughs> you expected me to say something, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> yeah, it, one of my favorite, Cool. I mean, well, I'm, again, this is going to be a wild uh, paraphrase, sleep-addled, uh, inaccurate paraphrase. But speaking of Borges, as we've done several times, and of, of, and which we could do uh, ad nauseum, no doubt. He has an. I think it's the introduction to the Island of Morel, um, by uh, Boy Casares. Which I, I hope I'm not butchering the pronunciation. I've I've rarely had to say his name out loud. Um, <laughs> Bio Casares. <laughs> yes, him. Um, Who's, who's also, you know, great and was very important to Borges and, and vice versa in, their, in supporting each other, literarily speaking. But in that introduction to that book, Borges says uh, something along the lines of after, you know, Dostoevsky, uh, after the late 19th, early 20th century psychological writers and the influence of Freud and, and people investigating uh, the nooks and crannies of human consciousness, that we now know that anyone is possible not anything, but anyone. Uh, in other words, that all the air, all the oxygen goes out of characterization because, you know, basically, no matter what kind of character you write, you can justify it with psychology. Um, which is to say, like, you know, typical trope in, in contemporary fiction is, you know, the serial killer who was abused as a child. Um, it's equally plausible to write a serial killer who had a perfect childhood because psychology allows for any, <laughs> any, uh, diverge, any, you know, any diversion from the common path is, is acceptable and can be justified using the tools of psychology. Um, and for Borges, that was the reason why psychological fiction was bankrupt. Um, now obviously, we're all human beings and we're all imperfect and we all have actual traumas and psychologies that we have to wend our way through and our characters are formed by those things often in very paradoxical ways. But when you realize that any single person you want, any pretend person, I should say, you want to write about can be made. There's no nothing stopping you, right? Um, people can say this is implausible, but you know, all you have to do is throw 300 words of, of psychology at it and you can probably make it semi-plausible again. Um, that's the reason why Borges 
favored genre fiction, favored, you know, more constrained fiction, because he was saying that, you know, there's no there there for the human human psychology really in fiction anymore. So we have to put something else in that we have to go somewhere else. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I, I would say that, you know, in aphasia, you know, you could kind of call it a psychological novel, but it's a psychological novel of negation. It's a psychological novel in which some of the tropes of psychological novels get called out and said they, they shouldn't matter, but here they are, right? So one of the typical sort of tropes of psychological novels, and you see this a lot in movies as well, is that, like, like you said, right, a character's doing something and then you have to do backstory to explain, you know, the origins of that particular action, right? Why did the character do this? And it's actually really obnoxious because it's—I feel like it's almost uh, being filtered into kind of action movies as well. Like, you know, there's yeah, that movie like Mad Max, right? Where like it's supposed to be Mad Max is more complex because it has these flashbacks, right, about what happened, and and they, you know. And it's almost like there's a certain linearity, right? Okay, the character's going to do this. We'll make the character more complex by giving a backstory that explains some of it, right? Um, some motivation of it. And like you said, of course, as humans, there's some of that. In it, but, this, you know, fiction is not necessarily the same as being a human and being alive, right? Like fiction is supposed to, like we were talking about, like find other avenues of expression and uh, and around those kinds of things. And so I think... There's a quote by Grace Pelly uh, in the book around she hates uh, she hates plot not for literary reasons but because it takes all hope away right um, and I think uh, and, I, and I think hope generally right hope hope that the book will be interesting you know <laughs> yeah Paley was another one who she really knew somehow how, how to write those, you know, I don't know, those those 2000 or sometimes in her case, considerably fewer words, worded short stories just about simple interactions and, and somehow making them, making them something else, making them something wonderfully alien, um, purely through technique and through insight. Um, goodness knows how she pulled it off. Um, <laughs> But yeah, no, that's that's you know, I, I it is a, you know, I would say aphasia is a novel with with psychology, but it's not a psychological novel. Um, yeah, yeah, no, I, I think that's right. I think the um, I pay a lot of attention to Antonio's emotions, um, but um, those emotions sort of lead to a variety of places, right? Um, imaginary dialogue is one that that. I was very sort of happy that I was able to introduce that into into my into my novels, just because I feel I don't know if this happens to you, but I tend to believe, and maybe it's just me, and then I shouldn't say it, <laughs> but I feel like most of us spend an inordinate amount of time having imaginary conversations. Oh, I certainly, uh, I certainly do constantly. It's it's maddening. Maybe it's, you know I don't know if it's everyone. Maybe it's just uh, <laughs> maybe it's just people who. Are, maybe that's a condition that leads you to being a writer, or <laughs> it's a condition that uh, leads you to try. Anyway, I, I don't know. It's funny because uh, I, I I joke. Uh, oh, of course, I joke most of the time, but I joke that uh, you know uh, me being a, a Catholic when I was a kid and and spending hours in a room praying to the Virgin Mary was my early practice to being a writer, right? Because you're having these sort of emotionally invested imaginary conversations with this imaginary being, right? Uh, and it's uh, it's a big part of your life, right? You just spent two hours that uh, were memorable, right? Because you somehow felt that she was listening to you and forgiving you for all the all your teenage sins, you know, which I'm sure you know what those are. Um, <laughs> I so, have no idea. <laughs> so, you know, I think imaginary dialogue becomes a big part of, of my novels. Uh, I think the second one, the third one, especially, there, there's a lot of that, right? Just characters. And it is not only like imaginary dialogue, okay, you're, gonna, you're about to meet someone and you have an imaginary conversation about how, how it might go. It's all over the place. Like walking down the street, you see someone, they look at you the wrong way and all of a sudden you have this imaginary dialogue that where you get into a fight with them or and so on like every instance there's this sort of ongoing dialogue that uh that i that that, that i like to dramatize in, in my books I, well i also had a religious background although um i was in yeshiva not in, in catholic school but yeah i've i've actually i've i've given a lot of thought to you know 
the religion let's just offend as many people as possible you know religion is a is a form of fictional of thinking about fictions and thinking about mythology and and mythologizing reality uh and i've often thought i had those conversations not with the virgin mary with with a, a far less relatable uh entity <laughs> who's who, who did, was not even you know allowed to have a physical form nor were we allowed to imagine a physical form Though uh, in the in the Bible he often has fingers and nostrils, particularly nostrils, which I always found odd. In the, in the Hebrew, he has he has flared nostrils all the time, even though he's not supposed to have a body, or or not you know a, 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 not a perceivable body anyway, not a body that a human could could understand uh, anyway. Yeah, no, I had those. That's that's how it all starts, isn't it? I mean, it's certainly for me, it's constant conversations with uh, with the beyond and justifying one's actions and and praying for X or Y result and. Uh, you know, thank God, uh, <laughs> I use the term advisedly, thank God, you know, some of us uh, end up writing novels and don't, you know, go down the route of investing more than one should in, in those revenge fantasies and those uh, imaginary <laughs> conflicts, because uh, that can, you know, fiction in life, you know, we get a lot of uh, novelists and, and, and screenwriters and, and playwrights like to get a lot of mileage about pretending that, you know, it can be, uh, the line between fiction and reality can be erased, but it's it's really only in politics that it gets erased and religion too. <laughs> and that's that's kind of dangerous. Yeah, one of the uh, one of the most vivid memories I have from elementary school, which um, just still amazes me that we can remember like things from so long ago. You know, it's just odd um, that I was in elementary school and I had just my mom had just bought this really expensive 600 word algebra book that we needed for class and I lost it. Um, and I remember praying for a very long time. And of course the usual prayer in this situation involves like, if you yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. make the book appear, you know, you're bargaining, right? And I've been doing uh, a lot of that the last couple of days. I'll, I'll have you know. <laughs> I, yeah, I, yeah. I promised God I would give up magical thinking for a whole year if he just <laughs> let us squeak through. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, I, I, uh, I, I did get the book back. And so I did feel that uh, God had, uh, of course, wow. heard me. And, uh, you know, I learned quite a bit of math and I was very good at it at the end. <laughs> Yeah, and then you threw it all away and started writing novels, man. I, I, don't I think the Virgin Mary is probably not very pleased with you, but you know, who, who am I? Please, please don't say that. <laughs> uh, okay, well, we've gone for like an hour now, or maybe a little less. Are we? Are we good for? Should we wrap up? Or it'd be, yeah. it'd be funny if if Maddie's like, you know, she's not there. <laughs> just hello. <laughs> no, we've just been talking. Yeah, no, no one's recording. <laughs> This I've is, been listening the whole time. <laughs> actually, um, the best possible way to get writers to publicize books, just put them in a room, let them talk, and just, you know, wander in, wander out. Don't, don't pay them any attention. You're like, are you still there? <laughs> Shut up already. <laughs> no, not at all. Um, this was great. I would, I would totally listen to you guys having your own podcast, if, if that's in the cards there you go. That's someday. Our, that's our future revenue stream, Mara. As, as publishers, publishers fold and 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 uh, everything falls apart, podcasts wave of the future. <laughs> Got to start a Patreon, you know. Yeah, yeah. it's good. Yeah, I think our podcasts were real until today. Frankly, I'm still not convinced. <laughs> we'll, um, we'll, we'll come up with our OnlyFans. I love it. Yes. <laughs> well, I'm so glad that uh, the wonderful Stephen Sparks introduced you both. Um, what a magical man he is. How does he do it? Yeah, really. Great, great reader. Um, universally beloved. Indeed. Um, yeah, our hearts go out to him here. Lives, but, you know, what, what can you do? <laughs> we won't have nature for many more years, so we should read about it while we can. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Wait, can we end on a, end on a slightly better note, slightly happier note here? <laughs> Boy, um, aphasia is on sale now. <laughs> there you go. Bring it back around to the book sales. That's what we like. Yes, that's <laughs> All right. Well, Jeremy and Maro, thank you so much. This has been a blast and and just a, a lovely treat. So thanks for making the time for this conversation. 
Um, is there anything Absolutely. else either of you would like to say, or do you have any projects you want to plug beyond the book? Jeremy, what's going on in the uh, your your new uh, uh, role at uh, in other stories? Oh, it's, uh, it's it's very exciting. I mean, I'm getting to move on uh, a few projects that I couldn't really do anything with at at my last job. So that's exciting. Um, you know, things are still things are still processing. So I'm not sure I should be making any announcements uh, without without permission. But uh, some some exciting stuff, some English language stuff, some translated stuff, you know, the usual, um, the usual way things go <laughs> with me. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's an exciting, an exciting time. It's good to be uh, with people who share my, my values <laughs> again. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> All right. Well, and other is amazing. Um, listeners, if you haven't checked out any of their books, please head over there. Um, small yeah. presses are doing some of the coolest, coolest stuff right now. And um, we got to we got to keep supporting them. I'll make one. I'll make one plug for uh, an other story's title that is coming up in January. Uh, it's called Slash and Burn by Claudia Hernandez. Oh, yeah. It is amazing. Uh, sort of oral history, modernist uh, oral history project, uh, where she actually interviewed a lot of uh, women that went through the uh, Central American Civil War and creates this sort of multi-generational narrative uh, about women, guerrilla women uh, from the 80s and 90s. It's, it's, it's quite impressive. Oh, we'll check that out. Did, did Claudia also write Knitting the Fog? Is that her debut memoir? Uh, no, I don't think so. Oh, okay. I'm getting her confused with a different Claudia. But either way, both books, great. Check them out. Um, all right. I think we're going to wrap it up. Thank you again, both for, for joining us here on the podcast. It's been a pleasure having you. Listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. Um, my name is Maddie Gobo, and I am signing off. So long, Jeremy and Mara. We'll catch you on the flip side. Bye. Have a good thank one. Thank you. All right. Talk to you. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon. I see.